Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and a big thank you especially to our live viewers. I'm Lauren Chen and this is my producer Liam and uh, we just want to say if you are watching this live, we really appreciate you and we also want to do a little apology for some technical difficulties we've been having with the TriCaster and connection. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we're past the worst of it and we should have smooth sailing from now on. Uh, but those problems aside, we've got a great show for you. Uh, we're going to start off with a little bit of a conversation about Bernie Sanders coming out and saying that prisoners should be able to vote. A yep. bold move, to say the least. Uh, then we have a conversation about interable dating. For those of you who don't know what that is, uh, dating someone who has some sort of disability. I don't even know if that's the correct PC term anymore. And uh, then we have colorblindness apparently being racist. So there's a professor who's come out and said that treating the races equally, not okay. And uh, at about the 30 minute mark, we are going to be having a Lauren Southern interview. Very exciting. She has her movie Borderless coming up. So uh, we have some questions for her about that. Mm -hmm. And if you are watching this and you would like to support these episodes and what we do, you can head over to blazetv.com forward slash Lauren and use the code Lauren to sign up and save money on your annual subscription. You get our show, you get Crowder's show, uh, Mark Levin, Glenn Beck, uh, Graham Allen, Ali Stuckey, Chad Prather. There's like Tons. Tons. I feel yeah. like it's easier to name people who aren't on Blaze TV than people who are on Blaze TV at that point. Um, but if you are a live viewer and you want to support us, you can also send us a super chat. That really helps yeah. a lot. We we'll still be taking it. them at the end of the show, but it's always a great show of support. So thank you yeah, very much for that. Really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, anyway, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, he's announced he's running for president again. I think he's currently the second second place, if that's right, uh, after Joe Biden for mm. most, most uh, support right now. Um, he recently did a town hall with CNN, and a lot of people are talking about it because he actually came out in support of prisoners voting, including uh, sex offenders, perhaps even literal terrorists. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not exaggerating. This is actually what he said, and we have a clip to prove it. Serious crime, sexual assault, murder. They're gonna be punished. They may be in jail for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, their whole lives. That's what happens when you commit a serious crime. But I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Because once you start chipping away and you say, well, that guy committed a terrible crime, not going to let him vote, or that person did that, not going to let that person vote, you're running down a slippery slope. So I believe that people who commit crimes, they pay the price. When they get out of jail, I believe they certainly should have the right to vote. But I do believe that even if they are in jail, they're paying their price to society, but that should not take away their inherent American right to participate in our democracy. So that's a that's a new position, one mm -hmm. we haven't really heard before. And I just want to say that there are actually a lot of people who say that ex-convicts should be able to vote. Yes, yeah. And I think that's actually pretty common, a, a position to have. Yes. Um, kind of people saying that if someone has paid their debt to society and they're already out, we're trusting them to be free around. Yeah. The rest of us... I think there's a conversation to have around that. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually pretty amenable to that idea. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I think voting rights should be granted as soon as you get out. But definitely, you know, if you've been out five years, you haven't uh, done anything wrong, your record has been clean since then, I don't think, you know, one crime should remove your voting rights for eternity. That, I think, is a pretty reasonable discussion to have. I think a lot of people right. actually support that. 
That's not what he's saying, though. No, no. He's definitely talking about people in prison having rights, which is a bit strange to me because... Voting rights, specifically. Voting We're rights. not saying no, no sorry. rights. Yeah, yeah. My apologies. <laughs> uh, voting rights. It, and that's a bit strange to me because he's clearly pro-incarceration. He's not against incarcerating people. And I think that... Yeah, he's bi- saying like they should be punished. Yeah, like you should have a prison system. Yeah. He's not against the prison system. But I do think that it's strange that... To me, the bigger violation of freedoms would be telling someone you can only eat at this time, you have to go to bed at this time, you can't go out, you can't see yeah, your family. Yeah, that's the other rights being stripped away are a bigger deal than voting. Much bigger deal than voting, right? So that's why it's like, is it really the un-American thing? Is it really taking away their voting rights? Or is it just the prison system in general? Yeah. I don't think the argument holds any water. No, and see, that's the thing. He... He paints this as a slippery slope argument. He says that specifically, that Mm. if you start taking voting rights away from the terrorists and the sex offenders, who's going to be next? And it's like, I feel like we've had this system in place for quite a while, and it really hasn't led to other people being disenfranchised. Yeah. I I think we're probably... Like, this is a very... It's a very, uh, like, objective standard to have. If you are currently in prison, you cannot vote. Mm -hmm. I don't really see many more liberties being taken with that. Right. And I mean, mean, the way that it was worded, too, was do you think that someone who is a sex offender, someone who abuses women, should have the right to vote in such ways that would allow that kind of behavior to be permissible? Or, yeah, I mean, the the, the question she asked specifically about sex offenders was that Mm. they would be potentially voting on things like women's rights. Yes, exactly. Or punishment for sex offenders. I think there is a conflict of interest there. And so that's the thing. He's painting this as he's definitely one of those people that believes with democracy, the more people voting, the better. And that is a very common viewpoint to have. Um, The root of the issue I have with this, though, I don't think more people voting is inherently better. And I know that's a controversial thing to say nowadays, and I'm okay with that. But you see, the value of democracy depends on the demos, depends on the people who are voting. Um, A lot of people think democracy equals good. I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, don't forget that the Muslim Brotherhood was voted in democratically in Egypt, and they're not exactly a freedom-loving, women's rights-loving group. Right? At its core, democracy really just means majority rule. So I, mm. I think there's more of a discussion to be had there, especially when you're talking about literal terrorists, yep. like the Boston Bombers. Um, I think it's safe to say they don't have the country's best interests at heart, considering that they tried to attack the country and their fellow... Um, I don't think there were citizens... In any case, were they the Sarnoff brothers? Uh, I'm not sure. But besides the point, um, we want good people voting, not just anybody voting. I think there is an argument to be made that someone who has committed a crime in the past but paid their debt to to society and shown that they can be a productive person, maybe they should have the rights restored. But people currently in prison, I don't think so. There's a discussion to be had there, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, what I think is going on here is that it seems to me like because this race will likely come down to Bernie versus Biden, maybe he's trying to out-woke Biden because Biden is pretty like toe the line. He at least was centrist back then compared to other people running now. I don't know. Is he trying to be like more progressive? I'm not even sure. But um, something that and Ali pointed out. Ali Stuckey pointed this out on Twitter. Uh, in that clip, Bernie Sanders actually says, if you are an American citizen and 18 or over, you should be allowed to vote. That actually makes him more moderate than other Democrats, yeah. as crazy as it seems. That's true. At least he's restricting voting to uh, citizens and 18-year-olds, not uh, 16-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Personally, I, I, I'm actually for more restrictions on voting, <laughs> as bad as that sounds. Right. I think it should be 25 I wouldn't have a problem with it being restricted to net taxpayers either, 
just because I think there is a problem with, you know, the majority of people voting to take away money and redistribute it from the minority who are would be wealthy people. But uh, yeah, I mean, there should be a conversation about voting. I'm glad that it is happening. I think a lot of people even on the left are saying that Bernie is just way too out there on the situation, though. Mm. Um, okay, next up, we have interable dating. Did, did you know what this that word me- meant? Uh, no, I didn't at the time. Yeah. I've, I've been enlightened right now, but I uh, almost wish I hadn't been. Yeah, so we've talked before uh, on this show, on this channel, about different types of dating. We have interracial dating, trans dating. Now the, the next frontier is apparently interabled dating. Um, so that's when someone who is not disabled dates someone who is. Again, these are probably not the right PC yeah. terms that Other, I'm Otherly using. abled, I think, is the word you're Otherly, differently abled. Differently abled, sorry. But then that sounds like they have some sort of extra ability, <laughs> which I, I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to get myself in trouble. Uh, if you follow me on social media, or even I think I've mentioned this in some videos, you will know that I am a Dr. Phil fan, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Uh, he recently had on a couple where the girlfriend was acting as a full-time caregiver to her boyfriend, who was actually a quadriplegic. And that episode has actually since caused quite a bit of controversy, especially in the interable dating community, which is a thing. And uh, we have a clip of that to show you guys. Taking more of a toll on our relationship than I thought it would have. This routine, it goes on seven days a week, 365 days a year. I empty out his bladder and then I get the bag and I clean it in the bathroom. As his caregiver, I'm the one that's responsible for making sure he gets his medicine, one for spasms, one for pain, and nausea. It's very exhausting. It's a lot worse when I feel like I don't have the support and compassion from Bailey. Taking care of Bailey has definitely taken a toll. I haven't had a full night's sleep in three years. So here's this girlfriend. She's a full-time caregiver to her, her boyfriend, and she's suffering from pretty obviously caregiver burnout, which is common amongst anybody who really has a, a full-time job taking care of another person. Um, and it, in that episode, they talk about how it's negatively impacting their relationship. Actually, that would be putting it mildly. Um, you know, the, the girlfriend is burnt out. She's unhappy. The boyfriend has depression. He feels like he's a burden on her, so he's acting out, and so they're just fighting This couple had a lot of problems on the show. Uh, Dr. Phil's advice that he gave them, which people are taking issue with, is that his girlfriend uh, should not be acting as his caregiver at all. She Mm -hmm. should be completely removing herself from that role, should just be in the relationship mode of things. And uh, he said that trying to act as the full-time caregiver and girlfriend is bad for the relationship, bad for both of their mental health. She's going to maybe resent him. He's going to feel like a burden, become depressed. And also he said that she is not qualified to be giving that care in the first place. Uh, Personally, I don't know how I feel about this, about the idea of... Because, I mean... If you love someone, you're going to want to take care of them. And that includes all the yes. way up until they're completely unable to do anything for themselves. But at the same time, considering that these people are, they're not married, they're just dating. Uh, I do worry that maybe there would be an issue of power imbalance. Um, yeah, that's something that we can definitely consider there. I think that there is a bit of a problem of consent versus authority, right? Mm-hmm. Which we've we've seen in the past, you know, if uh, anyone of authority over someone else has a relationship with someone else... Uh, um, at least in a progressive world, that's definitely considered uh, an a area taboo where yeah, be you, can't, you yeah. can't consent if they have authority over you in any domain. Well, really. that's why even so, um, a lot of people don't know that even if a student is 
18 or can consent legally to a regular sexual relationship, a lot of places will still prohibit teacher-student relationships because of the potential to exploit authority Mm. over that person. So, like, I'm not saying that this girlfriend is exploiting this boyfriend or anything like that, using her authority to coerce consent. Definitely not saying that. Um, But maybe from a perspective of we're just talking about whether conceptually these relationships are a good idea, I can see why some people might be worried. Um, But there is this one couple who are in an interabled relationship here on YouTube. Um, I think they're called Squishy and Grubs. Squirmy. Squirmy and Grubs. Squirmy and Grubs? Okay, I'm so sorry. Uh, I hope that one's right and not me. Or Anyway, one of the two. Uh, They're an interabled couple and they made a response to the Dr. Phil episode and that's kind of the meat of what I wanted to talk about. Dr. Phil the show team actually reached out to them to see if they wanted to come on the show. And they declined because they're kind of like, they do advocacy for interabled relationships. And they felt that it would be sort of sensationalized on the show. Uh, I respect that decision. And I'm going to be a little bit critical of some things that were said in their response video in just a second. But I want to kind of say that I have nothing wrong with this couple. They seem like a really cute couple. I am so glad that they're happy together. Uh, But they're... There was one thing that the girlfriend who acts as the caregiver said in that video that I thought was, uh, I had some disagreements with, and we have a clip of that now. ...opens the episode by giving the results of a poll that he took. So he surveyed his studio audience about whether they would, was it on Tinder, swipe right? Yeah, yeah. It was about Tinder, but it was like, would you swipe right on someone in a wheelchair? So basically, like, would you, like go on a date with someone in a wheelchair and 58 percent of the audience said yes which is fine well it should be a hundred because a wheelchair doesn't say anything about the person themselves but um then he asked them would you date a person in a wheelchair if you found out they needed care like caregiving and it dropped to like 25 percent yeah so he asked his audience those two questions to open the show so if that doesn't tell you how much he was focused on the disability and how negative it is. Like, he polled his audience to be like, would you date someone who needs care? And everyone was like, no. No. Yeah. So thanks to those 25 people, 25% of people that had their uh, their minds open. And to the rest of you, I hope you watch a couple episodes of our vlog. So here's the thing. Like I said before, this couple seems really cute. No hate toward them whatsoever. But I kind of disagree with her attitude there toward people who don't want to be in an interabled yeah. relationship. Yeah. I think that like we have a right to make moral claims about what relationships are permissible or not in society, right? Like we don't think that dating minors is acceptable. Dating, right, exactly. If you're not That's a, minor. a very easy example. Um, but I don't think we can make moral claims about who should be attracted to whom. Like yeah. you can't especially not in the sense that in a positive sense where you have you might have like a fat activist or or anyone saying that you ought to be attracted to people that look like this. Um, otherwise you are bigoted in some way or another. Yeah, and that's what the issue I had with it. It kind of seems like she's saying that everybody should be open to dating a person who's in a wheelchair and even a person who requires care. I I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to, like, I want to make that clear, date someone who is in a wheelchair or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. when we think about the fact that in a relationship, you're not just spending time with this person and, hopefully getting along and 
beginning to love them and eventually loving them, you're also going to be building a life with this person. So if we think about all the different considerations that go into making a relationship work, being able to take care of kids together, being able to potentially, if it's important to the other person, have biological children, yep. uh, being able to financially support a family. I, I don't think it's morally wrong to look at someone who requires full-time care and say, maybe they're not the best mate for me. Right, especially if you're not already dedicated to them one way or another. Right, right? and, and that's so. another decision that I want to make. There is a big difference between saying I would rather choose not to date someone who is, for example, quadriplegic than saying if my husband became quadriplegic, I would leave him. Right, yeah, there very big difference. huge difference there because I think in life there are always accidents that happen and once you make that commitment to mm -hmm. someone, you stick by it, it's different than choosing that situation right off mm -hmm. the bat. And I think that people have, have different abilities, like have different strengths in terms of how they can care for other people too and in what ways. Yeah. You know, for example, I, I actually did work with the physically handicapped uh, towards the end of my high school years. Uh, well, sorry, years, plural. Very briefly I did this because it was not something that, while I totally respected everybody involved, everybody involved in the care, and in fact, uh, it just my respect just grew exponentially, for both the caregivers and the handicapped that I was um, helping take care of, um, I could not do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. It was it was very strenuous, uh, challenging, and, and both difficult physically to take care of someone, but also emotionally and mentally. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a difficult situation. And, that, and that's the thing, like caregiver burnout, which is something that Dr. Phil addressed on his episode. And I'm not saying that I agree with everything he said, but that is a real thing, the the strain that it takes on people like emotionally, mentally, etc. And I think there is a difference between saying, I respect this person, would love to be friends with them, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, versus not only am I physically attracted to this person, because that's a part of it too, or it should be if you want to have a relationship with them, um, but I also, you know, am okay with committing to them to the rest of my, for the rest of my life and potentially also taking up that caregiver role. So I thought that was a kind of an interesting conversation to bring about. I, as someone who watched Dr. Phil, um, those videos were being recommended to me like crazy, <laughs> this little controversy. And uh, yeah, I would be interested to know what other people think about this it seems like I think a lot of people are pretty open to the idea of dating someone who's in a wheelchair. That's yeah. Not a I mean, I think thing. that that she, um, the girlfriend in in the YouTuber video in question, would have had a problem with the claim that you need to be attracted to someone to have a romantic relationship with. I them. I can so maybe see that. I yeah. could see her making a distinction on on that basis, which in some ways is a very pure, like a Puritan argument that I could kind of respect. Like you know, in, in the sense that you are you have transcended. You've transcended physical like, desire like, yeah. into this so that, like that, pure. I mean, uh, good on you, honestly, like yeah. really, but that's a, that's a difficult standard to apply to all of society. I would say, I'm not sure that that's realistic. And yeah, I, I would agree. Um, but all right, moving on, apparently treating the races equally is racist. We are at a new level of wokeness. Um, so colorblindness, if you've heard that term before applied to race, it's something people say usually when they want to make a point about how they're not racist. Like, oh, I don't, I don't even see color. Yeah. Does, like, uh, what? Are you black? Didn't know. Probably <laughs> I do wouldn't I do say find that. that. So, yeah. Like, you shouldn't yeah. be using that kind yeah. of... Yeah. So, like, I, I've argument. always thought the phrase, I don't see color, kind of cheesy, even yeah. though I understand the sentiment behind it. Um, but that kind of thinking has come under fire for being, like, culturally ignorant or racially ignorant among progressive circles. Uh, essentially, people 
say that when you say that kind of thing, you're being blind to the historical and social inequalities mm -hmm. and sensitivities that surround race. So you, you shouldn't say that you just, you don't see someone's blackness because you're supposed to see, recognize, and empathize and want to listen to them about their blackness. Yeah. And well, prostrate before them, I'm guessing. Is basically. The... Well, even, even though you could kind of listen to them, I don't think that her point is that we wouldn't even be able to really comprehend even if we did listen. You yeah, know, she... it's almost like a, a Lovecraftian Im imagery of race yes. cannot be comprehended. Yes. Um, Why yeah. don't we get into what, what the article actually says? Yeah, so uh, according to this uh, piece that we'll pull up, a guest lecturer at Boston University said last month that white people who judge others as individuals instead of by their skin color are dangerous, according to a report in the College Fix. The lecture, entitled What Does It Mean to Be White, was given by University of Washington professor Robin DiAngelo, a white woman. I hope they asked that that's how she identified. Uh, D'Angelo, who, according to her website, specializes, specializes in whiteness studies, added that people who say they've been taught to treat everyone the same deny black people their reality. D'Angelo said that when she hears people say they are colorblind, they are revealing their own ignorance. This person doesn't understand basic socialization, she said. This person doesn't understand culture. This person is not self-aware. She continued that, and I need to give a heads up to the white people in the room. When people of color hear us say this, they're generally not thinking, all right, I'm talking to a woke white person right now. Usually some version of eye rolling is going on and a wall is going up. Uh, first thing I would like to talk about here, whiteness studies. Is that, yeah. is I mean, that I mean, yeah, really like the, the claim that she, she was making to her authority right there. I would take that claim because I see whiteness studies and all this as completely unempirical and, and basically... Well, it's not. About, it can't be empirical. Right, of course. It yeah. is unempirical. That's not uh, That's not something that you could debate over. But it's 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 a made-up study. If someone told me they were a doctor of astrology and then referenced their own authority on the matter, hey, I would... astrology treat... fans are like vicious on social media. Well, so you be careful. The Leos will I, come for you and the Scorpios. That's I'm already I'm cancer, so it's, it's literally the perfect one for me. Um, but, but yeah, how do you become a professional in whiteness studies? Is that like... Do you just watch a lot of Downton Abbey? You you invent something crocs. new and then you put X amount of hours into developing it, I guess, yeah. you know? Who knows? Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so in my from my perspective at least, although I don't like the term colorblindness, I, I think the people who, who use that term, they don't they don't mean it to deny that someone is black, but it's more like I'm gonna treat you the same regardless of the fact that you are black, right? It just yes. it's about yeah, exactly. treating people equally as if race didn't even factor into it some might say um not being racist mm -hmm. might, might be a, a way to describe that um so as someone who i would like to think values equality in society and actual racial harmony i'm pretty sick of, of this kind of conversation at this point because if yes. you look at the progressive movement right now they are constantly trying to divide based on race and race baiting all right we we have white people being told to shut up that they can't talk about certain issues because they don't have that experience. I, I don't know how many videos I've made where I'm essentially told that my viewpoint is not valid, that I need to stay out of black people's business, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm told that I can't say certain words, not that I want to say certain, especially the main word, but you know, I'm being barred from it based on race. Uh, white people apparently now can't cook or eat certain foods. Uh, they can't wear certain things. And there's even this movement now that says white people shouldn't be dating non-white people, right? Yes, there have been yeah. a couple of articles where apparently interracial dating, condemning it, is the new progressive thing. So I just don't understand why we can't 
treat people equally. And if, if you really believe all of these things that are said about white people, like this whiteness studies professor, she really believes that white people are that bad. What is the point of living together? I don't understand. It's this whole situation is so confounding to me because if you look at any work that that's a, across time over the decades, you know, we're in the most peaceful time, most rich time in in world history, the least amount of racism statistically. Yeah, and they actually and, they do studies on this yeah, kind of thing. You could read anything by Steven Pinker. Yeah. And, and basically the amount of perceived racial division in in America and other has western countries up. has gone up despite it being inversely true. Right. So it, this this whole thing is is very very confusing to me. No, and it's it just it it's demoralizing. Honestly, yes, as someone yeah. who doesn't want racism, this is demoralizing. And I just I yeah, I don't understand if you think white people are this bad, then shouldn't we be trying to segregate the nations? Like can't in theory shouldn't we be like calling up Richard Spencer's like, "Oh, you were right. White ethno states are good, but not because of the reasons you think it's because white people, people are that bad and we need to keep them away from every, like, I just, I don't understand it. Um, and especially like, I can understand why if you're someone who, uh, grew up in a racially homogenous, like say a, a black community and you see the amount of poverty and struggles your own community has. And then you look at, for example, another neighborhood and everyone looks white and they're prosperous and they're rich. I can kind of, I can understand how resentment can build up. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you're you're wondering why why your life is different and the lives of your loved ones are different when these people who seem to have everything going for them uh, don't have any problems. And no one's I can understand that frustration. But what I don't understand is when this kind of rhetoric comes from these privileged white people. Right. And we've seen statistically they're actually more likely than than minorities to support these kinds of things. Yeah. Which is that's another part that's just it's like they're really willing racism into existence. Yeah. To fight it. And, and I don't I don't get that because if you are one of these white progressives who, like you said, we've seen statistically are more woke than even non-white people. We did a video about it. Um, like, is it is it because you think like you're this racist and you think all other white people are this racist? Is it because your your family is that racist? Where are you getting this idea if you have, in fact, lived among white people? I think it's got to be boredom. Bad? I think it has to be boredom. I think they have nothing in their lives that really is like dangerous to them yeah the, to you event, know, invent problems right you know life is too good right now for for the human condition mm-hmm. almost for i think a lot of these people and then they have to invent an enemy to conquer you yeah. know some way to show virtue which what easier way than to, to to say that racism exists and i'm not a racist yeah which is like fine and good i understand that people need purpose to feel like they're contributing to society i personally would rather they choose a different one that's not making society so much worse Right. Because I think this is actually to the point now uh, where things are regressing. Like you said, the perception of uh, racial relations is getting worse. So this needs to stop. I cannot believe this person is a professor who was invited to speak at other schools. Um, I think you can believe that. I know, but I don't want to. (laughs) We have a video, by the way, coming up about college debt and whether college is worth it trust me the people who are in these grievance studies are going to be mentioned um but i think it's about that time now where we're going to come back in just a few seconds with uh, an interview with lauren southern about her new video borderless and if you are sorry new film borderless and if you are watching live be sure to stick around after that we will be getting to your questions and super chats hey lauren thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me 
For sure. Now, I think the last time you and I spoke, uh, we discussed the work you did on your last feature-length documentary, Farmlands, um, you know, going to South Africa and talking about the murder and the pillaging of white South Africans and their farms, which I thought was really great work, something that's not talked about enough. Now, your next film, Borderless, which is going to be coming out in, I think you said, about a month, month and a half, um, deals with the migrant crisis. Now, we're going to get into some of the clips you've been releasing onto your YouTube account, which is Lauren Southern. If anyone is watching this on YouTube, the link to her channel will be in the description bar if you're not subscribed already. But would you mind telling us a little bit about what drew you to that issue for your next piece of work? Well, obviously the issue with migration, I truly believe is going to be one of the most monumental problems that the Western world, and I mean the world in general, is facing. We've never seen movement of people to this capacity, at this speed in history. I mean, yes, people have always been moving, changing cultures, meeting new peoples, having war, but we haven't had planes, trains, automobiles, and giant funded human trafficking rings like we do today. So what does this actually look like on the ground? Well, the media has told us this is a refugee crisis. These are desperate people just fleeing, trying to come to America or trying to come to Europe because they are fleeing war zones and oppression, and they're just getting on boats and hoping they end up in Europe. Then, of course, you have people uh, in the more alternative press saying, no, this is, to some extent, some people are saying it's an invasion. Some people are saying this is actually radicals, ISIS coming in. So how does it actually work? Well, almost every time that I have gone on the ground and covered a story and actually seen it for myself, the reality is completely different from what the press says. Because as we know, journalists are just people who sit in basements and they look for something that will hopefully get them clicks and get them a raise or keep them going for the day and type something up that their publisher will like. They have no idea what's going on on the ground. Half the time, they just make up quotes. We know this. This is something that is very, very common. Fake news. You see it everywhere. Very rarely do people go on the ground and check it out. So uh, although I'm just a YouTuber, I've made a documentary before, Farmlands, and my team and I figured we would kind of take a bit of a risk and see what we could uncover in uh, Morocco, Turkey, and all over Europe. We were going to try Libya as well, but the airport we were planning on flying into got bombed the day before, so oh, we kind of had to scratch that from the plans. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you kind of jokingly say, oh, I'm just a YouTuber, but you've done and like I said, you kind of released some parts and things that you've uncovered leading up to the documentary on your channel. You've uncovered some really serious things that I I don't know if, you know, if you are just like a YouTuber, I don't know why the quote actual press hasn't spent more time uncovering these issues. One of the videos you did, you actually tracked down a someone who's been accused of, of being a smuggler and engaging in human trafficking. And I'm just wondering, why why it's left to people like you who don't have the full backing of the establishment media to go on the ground and figure this stuff out. Would you mind telling us a little bit about um, some of the, I think the last two videos you did, which discuss the human trafficking crisis that's going on in areas like Greece? Right. So uh, one of my most recent videos that I put out was our interview with a human smuggler. And one of the big reasons that you aren't going to see this anywhere else is because, A, it's a very difficult Thing to do. It took us a week of having um, bilingual fixers undercover in Morocco, speaking to people, finding out where the camps were. And just so people know, the camps now have had to become 
uh, less and less overt because there is some pushback from the Moroccan police to just tents being everywhere all over the coast of Morocco. The Moroccan people aren't particularly impressed with this either. So my fixers actually found out that migrants are living in caves in the mountains in Morocco. We we called one of the areas kind of, uh, oh, what's, what's uh, the mines of Moria? Because <laughs> it's just like these huge mines that go deep into the mountains and there's just thousands of migrants living in there and we're like oh my gosh this is insane why isn't why isn't there, there are stories about yeah. this i guess because it's rather dangerous to go into these uh into these caves but once we actually found them um my fixers were able to figure out how a lot of the process went and then once it was safe and they determined that we could get an interview i flew over there from spain with one of my cameramen obviously this had to be done very undercover i was actually detained at the border and almost faced a lot of trouble um, getting in. They they were questioning me about being a journalist. And I, just so people understand the Moroccan border situation, this is the border where people, are, all of the videos you see of people climbing over the fences in groups of thousands, the Sueta, Malia borders, these are Spanish enclaves in Morocco. They are nuts. You go in there and it's just dirt and sand roads and people pulling cars apart, uh, guards pushing people around because they're hiding migrants in the engines, they're hiding migrants in luggage bags in the back. So luckily my fixer, who speaks Arabic and a myriad of other languages, managed to get us out of that situation. So it's expensive, it's hard to do, and it's dangerous to do. But when we got there and we actually met some of the people that were migrating and uh, illegally trying to enter Spain, the whole thing we found out was a business. There's not a single humanitarian aspect to this, at least for Morocco, which is now the largest um, port for migrants to leave from since the Libyan Italian one has been shut down by Salvini. So you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people leaving from this place every month, month and there is not a single humanitarian aspect to it. You have to pay 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 euros to get on one of these boats to get to Spain. Do you think poor uh, refugees can afford that? Do you think mm -hmm. that um, these, these traffickers care if you're fleeing because of your religion, your race, or political persecution? No, they speak in terms of money. And the people who have money are going to be people that are able to, uh, they have work back at home. A lot of them are from sub-Saharan Africa, they're from Nigeria, they're from uh, all, all over the place, Gambia. They're selling their house, they're getting money from their family, they're coming over and they have money and they're able to pay these 2,000, 4,000 euro fees to cross the water and none of this is humanitarian. The only aspect that could be perceived as humanitarian is the NGOs on the other side of the water who believe they're doing a humanitarian service, but in reality, the people who are working these giant gangs and human trafficking rings just see them as a part of their business plan. They tell their clients, we have a boat waiting on the other side to pick you up. So you pay us up front and we'll get you straight to Spain. And these NGOs are just compliant mm -hmm. in a human trafficking ring that has no interest, no interest whatsoever in humanitarian aid. Now, the situation that you're describing, it just sounds so different from the line that I think a lot of us are fed about our need to open our borders to people who are genuinely in need. And I think we did a video a long time ago about John Oliver's segment covering the migrant crisis. He literally chooses, um, you know, a, I think she's a Syrian girl who's in a wheelchair who taught herself English and is clearly just, you know, this brilliant, he, that's what he, a lot of people like to put as the face of this migrant crisis because of course, 
everyone wants to help uh, disabled children who are fleeing war. You'd have to be a monster to not have that affect you. What you're describing sounds completely different. It almost sounds like a lot of these people are actually economic migrants. But I think a lot of uh, a lot of viewers may be under the impression that once they get to the ports, oh, there must be some sort of screening in place, someone to vet these people to make sure that they are who they say they are, they don't have ties to any place dangerous, they're really in genuine need. What happens when these people actually get to Spain? So this is also something we discovered in the mountains of Morocco, is when we were walking around, we would see all these passports on the ground, and they would be ripped to shreds, all the pieces in them missing, and you'd pick them up, and they'd be uh, Gambian, Senegalese passports, Nigerian passports, and we were like, why are these people ripping up these passports? So we asked one of the, uh, one of the guys that was showing us around the camp, and he said, well, you rip up your passport so that once you touch ground in Spain, they can't deport you because you have nowhere to be deported to. They don't know who you are. So of course there's no way of tracking these people, which makes it an even more tragic case because rather than the narrative that we are helping people or saving people, it's quite the opposite. You're bringing in a bunch of people that have made it literally impossible right. to even help them or determine whether they should be helped because they have no identification. Think of how difficult it is to migrate when you've provided all of your bank forms, when you've provided your passport, yeah. all of your address history, everything. It takes five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years for families that are Christian families, English-speaking, educated, to come to the Western world legally. How are we supposed to find out where these millions of people are coming from when they're ripping up their passports and throwing them out on the advice of human traffickers? And not only that, it does a disservice to themselves because now they can't be put into any sort of system. They can't be given a job. They can't be given... Uh, we can't even figure out if they're ISIS or criminals, so they just end up living on the streets because they can't become a part of the European system. So how are we helping people? Not only are we hurting legitimate refugees and legitimate applications to come in to Europe from people who are persecuted, but we're certainly not even helping the people who are trying to come in illegally, who are tossing out their passports and throwing away all their money for a dream that isn't true. And it is a dream that they're sold. I want people to really understand this, that you and I, we would probably take some of these opportunities as well if we were living in Africa, if we were told yeah. by a human trafficker or a friend who called us up, listen, I've got you a ticket to paradise, 2,000 bucks, 4,000 bucks, I'm gonna get you to Europe, you're gonna basically be, they, they have this vision that once you get to Europe, you're living like a king, you're living like a queen, it's amazing, it's perfect. And uh, they, of course they sell that because they're trying to make money, it's a business, and your clients can't come back and complain when it's illegal and they're in a different country. So these people are lied to as well, and it's it's quite tragic for everyone involved. Right, and I think something that shocked me when I was watching um, some of those videos that you've put out is just the sheer number of people that we're talking about. And that's something that it's really hard to wrap your mind around if you haven't, I think, probably been there and just seen the amount of traffic that goes through. Would you mind kind of trying to give us uh, an idea of how many people some of these smugglers have helped or how many people are living in these camps that you've mentioned? Because, I mean, you know, a lot of people may be thinking, well, Europe's a big place. What's, you know, 1,000 here or there? But what kind of numbers are we actually seeing when we're talking about this? So I personally, if you look up the actual numbers um, that are recorded, we're talking uh, thousands of people coming from Morocco monthly, under 10,000, uh, the numbers would say for sure. But I don't know if that's the reality, because right. on the ground, these camps, 
you can find them everywhere and anywhere. We only spent a week and a half in Morocco, and in every mountain we were going to, every city we were going to, we were talking to people, cab drivers, cafe owners, and they're like, oh yeah, there's another camp up there. They've got a few thousand people there, a few thousand people there, and constantly new people are coming in. And it's separated into two different types of camps. You've got one uh, for storming the walls. So these are people that are a little more poor and they can't afford like the 4,000 euro tickets. So they collect in groups and they separate based on race because they don't want to have many race wars. So they'll have a Senegalese camp, Gambian camp, whatever, um, Kenyan camp. And then they've got the boat camps. So the boat camps are people that have a little more money and are waiting for their chance to be put on the boat. The wall storming camps are waiting for more and more people to arrive. And then when they get numbers of a few thousand, they plan a day to storm the fences so that they have as many people as possible to go over so some of them cannot get caught. It's like a big game of British Bulldog with the Spanish right. police. Um, and then the, the camps where people are waiting to go on the boat, what they were telling me is they have hundreds and hundreds of people leaving every single day. They're putting 500 to 1,000 people in boats to go over to Spain, possibly in a day. This is what I was told by people who work within the trafficking rings. And each of those people is paying 2,000 to 4,000 euros each. That's this a lot of money. This is a million dollar business. Multi-million, it's, it's, they're making insane money. And no one is talking about it. It's not in the media, it's not in the press because it's not particularly interesting to the press to negate every single story they've told us over the past five years that this is not a business, that this is a humanitarian crisis, that these are not gangs, that these are not rich people, well, rich comparatively to mm -hmm. those who could certainly not afford to come, like genuine refugees. Um, and that's another thing that we actually discovered in Turkey, as well speaking to people about human trafficking. This isn't a matter of people fleeing and desperately jumping onto boats. How it works is the human traffickers actually find you and ask you if you would like a trip to Europe. They go out and they have salesmen that go on the street and they say, that person looks Afghani, that person looks Iranian, they look like they might want to leave. Um, and they'll approach you and say, here's our prices, this is the night we're leaving, let us know if you would like to come. And that's what goes on in Turkey and that's also what goes on in Morocco. This isn't a, as it's portrayed, a desperate situation, let's get in the boat immediately, if we don't leave we're going to be persecuted. No, this is a business. It's got multiple tiers, you can literally buy uh, meal packages in some cases through the Bulgarian route. You can buy the fourth. The difference between the two thousand and the four thousand price in Morocco is the four thousand price. You have a guarantee. So if the boat doesn't make it and it sinks on the way, then you get to take another one. The two thousand, it's uh, buy once uh, and, and if it sinks, it sinks, and you'll have to pay another two grand for the next try. There are literally like business tiers and packages. There's salesmen. Like travel insurance by the sounds levels. of it. It's literally travel insurance. It's, it's insane. insane. That's, wow, that's really crazy. And I think another one of the, and if people haven't seen this video, I think you really need to. Uh, you actually go to, I think it's Greece, and you go into uh, one of these camps, and you talk to the people there about things like the presence of ISIS, and I think this is another really important thing that needs to be covered, because people have raised concerns when they see the number of people coming in. It's like, well, okay, you know, whether or not we're screening the people who are most in need, another issue we need to worry about is the presence of radicals and extremists, especially when we're talking about um, influx of Middle Eastern immigration. Uh, those people 
have by and large been called Islamophobic and extremists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, based on a, a gentleman you met and some of some other people in that Greek camp, uh, maybe those those worries and those concerns aren't as unfounded as the media have led us to believe. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure thing. A, a lot of um, the refugee crisis and this migration has been portrayed as a Muslim crisis because there are a lot of Muslims that are coming into Europe. But what people often don't discuss is some of the most vulnerable individuals in the Middle East and some of the most genuine refugees are people that are coming from Christian backgrounds because as we've seen, they are they are attacked, they are victimized. There are constant attacks on Christian churches all over the world from Muslim radicals. So a lot of, there are some genuine people trying to flee, but what happens is they got, get caught up in this mass of the exact thing they were trying to flee. So in, when we don't have an actual system, which there currently doesn't really seem to be much in place to verify who is coming in and we just accept boatloads and boatloads of people, well, what you get is a situation where you have a camp full of thousands and thousands of Muslims some of them possibly even radicals with genuine refugees that were trying to escape these people. And this is what we discovered in the Greek camps when we spoke to individuals who are of atheist background and Christian background. They were constantly being tormented. They had scars on their bodies from being stabbed. They were terrified of living in this camp. And something else we discovered in Greece actually was one of the NGOs there in order to try and fake refugee status and get people into these Moria camps and get people into Europe was they were teaching Muslims how to pretend to be persecuted Christians. They were teaching them how to pray. They were teaching them what Christian holidays were. This is a group called Advocates Abroad. And they were teaching them, do not say that you're a Muslim, um, or not, not even do not say you're a Muslim, just say you're a Christian so that you can pretend to be persecuted. And even if you're not a refugee, you can get into the refugee programs and be with these people. So they could very well be teaching people who are ISIS radicals. They could very well be teaching people who are Islamic extremists, people who never would have passed the refugee process, who never would have passed these tests to be allowed in the camps with these genuine refugees. And now they're all being lumped together and you are victimizing uh, people that were trying to escape these horrific situations beforehand, and this is not a unique situation. This I'm not even surprised, which is sad, because this isn't the first time I've run into stories like this. In 2016, I went to the Calais camp in uh, in France, and I had the Christians there show me. I had an Eritrean man tell me he was constantly being bashed over the head and beaten whenever he'd walk to church on Sundays. And it goes to show there were mosques all throughout the Calais jungle camp, and then off way off in a field to the side away from all of the camps away from all of the tents there was one church and all of the christians would have to go there with basically guards watching them the french police would watch them when they went to church on sunday and anyone who was seen going there would be beat up would be victimized of course they were showing me their scars the marks on their head the parts where they're bleeding and it's just we are not being considerate of the people we are bringing into our countries, nor are we being considerate of genuine refugees that are waiting to legally come in and genuine refugees that are being stuck in these camps with the very thing that they were trying to escape. Right, and that, that's what I find interesting about the work you've been doing now, because it seems from everything you've been releasing that this migrant crisis should be a concern not only for people who care about 
things like immigration control or borders, but even for those who are concerned about the persecuted minorities or the genuine refugees, this is a broken system just all around. No one is benefiting really except for criminals and it seems extremists. Um, so you mentioned that it's kind of understandable why a lot of journalists wouldn't want to do this firsthand reporting because it is it is dangerous, it is expensive. I know there was a point in one of the videos where uh, a, a young man asked you guys to go into his tent with him and I was kind of worried for you. I mean, you're, you're safe, thank goodness. Oh, that was it's... the least of our problems. <laughs> yeah, you, you have a lot more bravery than I do in that respect. But, you know, now that the, the work has been done, by you and your team, people like Kaylin, now that it's out there, um, how has the, the media received your work? Have you gotten any any extra attention from that? Have there been requests for, for interviews for you to, to verify this work or anything like that? Because it seems like if this information is already out there, which it is thanks to you, that people should be talking about it. People don't like to admit when they were wrong. And that goes for anyone, left or right. I mean, it was certainly a shock for me when I went in and actually spoke to some of the migrants in France and spoke to the migrants on the ground in Morocco to see, you know, some of them were extremely nice people. They were wonderful people, mm -hmm. um, very talented people, but they had been screwed over by the lies of human traffickers. They had been told they were headed to paradise. They had been told it would be no problem if they ripped up their passports and now they're living on the streets of France where they can't get a job, they can't be processed. Uh, and they feel that they were invited by Europe that said, we have open arms, refugees welcome, and now they're kicked out onto the curb. So it was a humbling experience for me to see, you know what, maybe my portrayal of this hasn't been entirely accurate. Maybe there's more victims here than just the European people who I believe are a victim of cultural loss and also uh, difficulty with assimilation. But I don't think the mainstream press is going to be so capable of that humility, unfortunately, because for the past five years, past for ages they've been telling us this is a refugee crisis if you question that you are a bigot if you have a different view than us other than we need to open our borders completely you are a bigot and for someone to come and show them evidence that these ngos aren't so ethical this this process is not really humanitarian it's a business these migrants are not benefiting from your false compassion where you said you have open arms and then you leave them to to live on the streets and our governments can't handle the numbers, we can't process them. Well, how does that make these journalists look if they were to admit all that, if they were to admit this grand experiment that they sold to us through the lens of compassion was not only a lie, but something that has been devastating for those they claimed to be compassionate for. I don't think you're gonna see any mainstream journalists sewn up to that. That's... I don't think so. I think they'd rather have their false compassion and their image of being these saviors when really the very people they claim to care for are sleeping on the streets now. Mm, and I think that's that's an unfortunate prediction, but I think you're probably right. Um, for people who are going to see the full film and probably be shocked in at least a couple of ways with the information they're given, what do you think can be done to sort of remedy this? Because this is this is a situation where you know a lot of the the criminal aspects of this are taking a pl taking place overseas. So it's almost like if Europe, Europe does want to crack down on the traffickers, they're not necessarily within the jurisdiction where they're able to take action on that. You're dealing with um, you know places where there are huge borders that kind of face the open oceans where anyone can come in. What can be done to mitigate this? Well, first of all. I think we need to tell the truth. We need to be honest about what's happening for both the benefit of the people already within Europe, migrant and native, and for the people that are potentially still wanting to come over. Tell them. 
you know, if you throw out your passport, as much as people may want you to still come, as much as people may want you to still come and be a part of European society and help you, it's just not possible. There aren't enough government programs in place. There, The systems that they have, all of the hotels are booked up. There's no way to process you. There's no way to give you a job. There's no way to make you a part of European society when you've tossed your passport into the sea and you have no identity and no proof that you are a refugee or even a migrant from wherever. We don't know who you are. So there's no way of assimilating you. And that's sad, but that's the truth. To tell people the truth about the fact that maybe all of these young people going and donating and going to be a part of these NGO organizations in Europe, you're not necessarily really helping refugees. You're not necessarily doing the things that you believe you are doing. This is a criminal syndicate that you are supporting. And the more ships that go out there, the bigger their business can get. You look at what happened in Italy with Salvini. I mean, maybe, sure, there's a lot of criticisms that there could have been better ways for it to be done, but the drownings have almost gone to zero and the massive gang criminal syndicates going on in Libya have been a whole part of their business. The very last step of their business of the migrants being brought in by these NGOs has been shut down. Mm -hmm. So they've been dried out. And these were groups, criminal syndicates that were taking part in slavery. So think, I mean, personally, I'm glad less people are drowning and I'm glad there's less slavery happening. So, or the gangs that are supporting slavery are being cut off um, to an extent. But literally it's going to come from honesty, honesty to both the migrants coming in from the governments and honesty to the NGOs and the people donating to them. Uh, and I, I don't know how honest the mainstream media and mainstream politicians are going to want to be though, because that's going to take them, it's going to really, they're, they're going to have to suck up a lot of their pride to do that. Well, I mean, I hope for the continent's sake and not even just Europe, but we're starting to see this kind of thing happen more and more often in places like Canada as well. Um, I hope people are able to swallow their pride and talk about this issue with honesty and transparency. But I really appreciate you coming and sharing your experiences with this. Um, Of course, people can find you on your YouTube channel, which will be linked down below. It's Lauren Southern on YouTube. Uh, If people want to not just follow your work, but also be able to take an active role supporting you, because, of course, you are part of independent media, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank goodness Borderless has been fully funded by you, the watchers. And that is an incredible thing to be able to do, especially since it is such a big documentary project. But if you go to uh, laurensouthern.net or you go and watch any of my videos on the topic, there are links below where you can still support the project. Any extra proceeds are going to promoting the project. Um, we may put up billboards. We're certainly going to put Facebook ads, Twitter, put it all over the place so that people can see what is actually going on before the European election, certainly, and just in general, start telling the truth about the situation and hopefully some change will follow. I even hope to an extent that people, uh, migrants themselves, watch this and understand what they're getting themselves into. It could save a lot of lives and it could save um, a, a lot of... <laughs> a lot of uh, chaos in the future, potentially. Yeah, for Save sure. us from a lot of chaos. For sure, and I, I'm excited to not just see the full documentary, but also to see the reaction that comes from this documentary, and I hope people pay attention to it. But thank you again so much for coming on and speaking to us about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
Well, that's it for the show tonight. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And for our live viewers, be sure to stay on this stream because we're going to be back in a few seconds with some exclusive Q&A. But aside from that, we'll see you guys next time. Bye.